Welcome again to Language Made Difficult, a nutritious part of the SpecGram podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. Back again with me in the equipment closet of the John Wilkins Conference Room is my favorite human, Trey Jones. Hi, everybody. To his left is the Vice President of the Stockton Slingshot and Pocket Watch Association, Keith Slater. Great to be with you guys. And joining us live via satellite from inside the cockpit of a 747 speeding over the Indian Ocean, Bill Spruill. Hey. Thanks for joining us. All right, for those about to lie, we salute you. Here's more lies, damn lies, and linguistics from Trey Jones. You guys know the drill. I've got three language-related items. Two of them are true, one is false, and you guys have to figure out which is which, and after you make your guesses, we will discuss. Uh, first, though, I have an amendment to the scores. Keith successfully filled out form v 719 r to submit his answer for episode eight, uh, which he got wrong. <laughs> so uh, the, the scores stand now. Uh, Keith, three out of eight, and Bill and David are tied at five out of eight. <laughs> first place is mine for the taking. Uh, depressing. Anyway, here we go. First item. The word doored was accidentally added to the 1934 Webster's New International Dictionary. Number two, the average number of color terms in a language is five or six. English has 11, and the most in Berlin and K's famous survey was uh, 21 for Hungarian. Number three, the Hadza language spoken in Tanzania has separate words for a number of rotting animal carcasses, which are considered a delicacy. Elephants and hippos are considered a single category, though they have different words for male and female animal carcasses for most animals. Who wants to go first? Okay, I, I think I'm going to go first because I I really believe, I mean, I have to believe that one of these is false. Wait, first of all, I, I think I got confused again. Are we choosing the false one or the true one? <laughs> Two of them are true. <laughs> one is false. Choose the hey. false one, David. Choose I, the false one. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, I, I swear. See, this is my first time doing it, I, I'm pretty sure, so I'm, I'm not as well-versed. <laughs> okay, I will absolutely believe anything that has to do with rotting carcasses and language. So three is absolutely true. That's got to be That's got to be true. The first one, I'm pretty sure that dord is a word. Anyway, I would be upset and offended if I opened any dictionary and didn't find dord, because that's, uh, at least that's a past participle of to door, right? So that one's got to be true. The false one is going to be the, the color term one. I, I'm going to say the part of it that is false, and this is specific, is that Hungarian has 21 color terms. Because I assume we're talking about basic color terms. If we were just talking about color terms, English right. has over like a thousand billion. And I'm pretty sure that the largest <laughs> number of basic color terms is 12. And that's Russian that distinguishes dark blue from light blue. There it is. Uh, well, I think you're wrong, David. Um, okay. I admit that I um, didn't memorize, well, okay, I didn't read Berlin and Kay's famous study, so I can't say anything about that. I'm with you on the anything about language and rotting carcasses. That's got to be true. But the first one is clearly false. So uh, it's possible, possible you can conceive of the situation in which a word is accidentally added to a dictionary. You cannot, however, conceive of the possibility that an entire entry was accidentally added to a dictionary, you know, including mm. definition and and, uh, and uh, you know, antonyms and all that sort of stuff that they put uselessly in dictionaries. So that, that you know, the, the proofreaders would have caught this. So number one is definitely false. Okay. Well, I disagree, especially on number one. I think the word Dord was accidentally added to the dictionary because it was supposed to be drawed. Uh, number. Did you say I, droid? 
Drawd. Drawd. Transposition of the O and R. Right, right. It's your basic metathesis. Number three, I am also willing to believe that there are separate words for these because when it comes to exotic delicacy foods, it's pretty easy to believe anything, including odd things that have to do with weasels and coffee beans. So, number two, I believe, is the false one, but for a different reason. English does not have 11 basic color terms. That is inflating the actual number of basic color terms in English. They may be pretending that your average person goes around applying the label indigo to things, but they don't. Yeah, the question of what's a basic color term is um, makes this a suspicious claim no matter what number you put in there. Uh, Unless it's a number I agree with. I'm pretty sure I can name all of them right now. Whatever. <laughs> Let's start with number three. Uh, the Hadza language does, in fact, have separate words for each of several different kinds of rotting animal carcasses, both male and female. So everybody was right on that one. <laughs> so I guess we'll take them in reverse order. Number two. All right, David, let's hear the 11 basic color terms in English. Okay. You ready? <laughs> yep. Okay. First, black and white. All right. Next, red, blue, green, yellow, orange, pink, gray, brown, purple. There you go. That's them. What anyway. happened to tan and puce and, you know... Not basic. What do you mean not basic? <laughs> not we're not going to... Go ahead. Pink is not a basic color. Pink is a basic term. color. <laughs> pink is a basic color, <laughs> according no, to Berlin and Kay. If and you see, they're wrong. Pink and orange aren't basic color terms. <laughs> but remember, this, this is not a question... They're named after botanical items. <laughs> this is not a question about basic color terms. This is a question about Berlin and Kay's survey. Okay. Which presupposes basic color terms. <laughs> you did not have on there, according to Berlin and Kay, Yes, he did. That's implied by the question. More or less. Anyway, David, if you're going to have the exact specific answer for why something is wrong, don't go first. Oh, right. Okay. (laughs) So David's right. Hey. Yeah, the the maximum is is 12 for both Hungarian and Russian. Ah. Are they the same 12? I don't know. Okay, but just real quick, Bill, this is why pink is a basic color term. It's not okay in English to describe pink as light red. It is if I'm describing things. (laughs) Well, you're a linguist, so you're non-naive. Into- although sometimes, uh, although sometimes I would call it frosty cerise. <laughs> Moving on. The word "dord" was, in fact, accidentally added to the 1934 Webster's New International Dictionary with a definition. With a definition, the definition was density. The word was supposed to be D or D, as a, a capital D or lowercase D. Oh. It's an abbreviation for density, and they ran it all together as Dord. <laughs> well, so it wasn't accidentally added. It was accidentally mistyped. I, I protest. You <laughs> uh, could take it up with the review board. <laughs> the question was misleading. <laughs> Isn't that the point? Okay, so the scores now. Keith still has three, and Bill and David both have six. Okay, but I say that I should get a half point extra because Bill obviously chose the answer he did because I went first, as you pointed out, Trey. <laughs> well, since he completely disagreed with your reasons, I think he I'll, did. Give you, I'll give you the half point, but only if you let me take away two points for never being able to remember whether it's one item or two that it was... <laughs> And, and I would anyway. point out that being right for the wrong reasons is a tradition in linguistics. Oh. <laughs> true enough, true enough. Okay, point conceded. Anyway, I only chose mine be- just because I wanted to disagree, so uh, I should get three points for <laughs> adding color to the discussion. 
<laughs> oh, I was just going to give you three points for disagreeing with David. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Trey. Next up, some language news. But first, a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by the makers of Language Made Difficult. Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. Now for some language news. Technorag Wired reports that ornithologist Carl Berg from Cornell University has determined that parrots give their young names. That is a unique set of chirps and squawks which help to distinguish individual parrots from other parrots. While these name calls have been observed before, Herr Berg has discovered that the names aren't hardwired. That, in fact, even foster parents will give adopted parrotlings their own individual names, and these names will be used in parrots society thereafter to identify them. As human beings, we know where this leads. Uh, it's to summarize just very quickly, first, the parrots have names. Second, they form communities. Third, their parrot armies flutter over the earth and enslave us all, grinding our bones to make birds seed. So, Keith, the world wants to know, are we nearing the parrot apocalypse? And do we have the moral obligation in order to preserve the human race to make a preemptive strike on the parrots? Goodness, we're in trouble here. Clearly, Parrots are hot on our tails in terms of evolutionary development, metaphorical tails, of course. And yes, we better do something quick. But let me point out that the danger is maybe not as pervasive as it might sound, because I think that you're going to have to expect that parrots are only going to be concerned about humans who they see as potential competitors. And those are going to be people with highly colored hairstyles. I think those are the people who really need to be concerned. I think as long as we eliminate hair dye, we're going to be able to coexist. <laughs> so one thing I noticed just thinking about this is that, you know, especially in the context of our art article from last week, is that even baby parrots are more intelligent than human children, right? Because, I mean, these, these are little things, and they're learning these names and are able to recognize them, whereas babies, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure they don't know anything. All they do is sit there and drool, right? Something like that. I think the researchers are making a false assumption from the beginning, because they're sort of measuring these calls and saying that's a specific kind of contact call. What instead is going on is that the male parrot is saying, how did he get that crest color? Nobody in my family has frosty cerise crest feathers. And nobody <laughs> in your family does too. Who's been visiting? The mother, you know, the female parrot is saying, it's a recessive trait. It happens occasionally, that kind of thing. And then the adopted parrot chick hears this and the poor thing thinks it's its name. <laughs> It's the parrot equivalent of the 19th century explorer walking around saying, oh, it's the look he's pointing, mountain range. <laughs> I like it. It seems, though, that what we have here, at least what we've, what we've hit on, is a possible new subfield of linguistics. Uh, that is specifically parrot phonology. Is this something that we can explore and exploit for at least, you know, another 50 or 60 years, just pumping out new uh, optimality theory accounts of parrot phonology and bird names and so on and so forth. Uh, is there Absolutely. a Parrot phonology, yes. And also um, parrot semantics is going to be a field that's just ripe for investigation. Another area we could look at is language contact between parrots and dolphins. <laughs> I think that's going to be very, very interesting. I think we'll find out fairly quickly, though, that the parrots themselves are simply a border phenomenon. <laughs> They're the, kind of the, the, the parrots, interface between... Well, well no, the, the parrot itself is simply sort of the interface between the parrot call and a transmission medium being reality. <laughs> the 
compare it as a tool for the language to use. Well, sort of, although that that implies intention, which, of course, would not be part of language proper. Well, Keith was just being using metaphor, so. Yeah, so sentences just happen. (laughs) (laughs) So parrots themselves are simply performance error. See, that's that's why I didn't have much to say when you first started talking about the bird apocalypse is because that seems theoretically uninteresting. That's performance, not confidence. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Are, are humans only performance errors in the same way? <laughs> oh, no. They're, they're just called happy accidents, or at least that's what my mother said of me. <laughs> so uh, if I can bring in another apocalypse that we've discussed recently that I think we took a little bit more seriously, could these parrots be in league with the robot Roombas that go around naming the areas that they uh, demarcate as they, as they Roomba around the floor? And if so, is this something that is going to... Well, basically, I guess the question is, are they in league with the robot Roombas, or are they competing with them? We would have to find out if the Roombas start giving the parrots contact calls, or vice versa. Oh, you know, Roombas actually do make beeping noises when they have errors. You need to introduce errors into the the Roomba environment and see if the parrots can learn those as, as their names. They might form some sort of symbiotic combination so that you would get sort of lazy, obese parrots scooting around on Roombas, ordering them to attack people. Kind of like a small feathered job of a hut, but one that wants crackers. <laughs> Well, for those parrot patriots listening and plotting, I, who go by the name, stand with you. I am not your enemy. Next, for some actual news, according to Theodore Dalrymple, a fake name if I've ever heard one, of the Wall Street Journal, the state of Indiana is axing the requirement for elementary school children to learn cursive writing, also known as longhand or curvy letters. The article is a heartfelt and beautifully written lament for what has been lost, and a fearful warning of a future in which children become sociopaths instead of learning a second and unnecessary script for their language. After reading this article over several times, I have just one question, Trey. What on earth is cursive? (laughs) Cursive is a a dying technology that we no longer need in our digital age. I found this article to be really, really frustrating. At the end, the author writes that when he was learning to write that he had the feeling that for good or evil, what he had done was his own and unique. And since everyone's writing was different, despite the uniformity of the exercises, our handwriting gave us a powerful and very early sense of our own individuality. Oh, and he goes on to say, those who learn to write only on a screen will have more difficulty in distinguishing themselves from each other. All I can think is, this guy must have such a boring existence as a child and no ability to write and differentiate himself with his style and substance. And that the only thing I remember from, from my experience is learning to write cursive is that it was the only subject that I didn't get a good grade in because mm. I didn't care. Because <laughs> the point is just to be able to scrawl something down that someone can read. It doesn't have to be beautiful. And I think it should go the way of lots of other useless technologies um and i guess i'm just so hulk smash this bad (laughs) (laughs) i like how you brought up the quote at the end if i could just finish that quote so you start out uh, those who learn to write only on a screen will have more difficulty in distinguishing themselves from each other you know except by the content of their writing anyway it finishes and since the need to do so will remain, they will adopt more extreme ways of doing so. Less handwriting then, more social pathology. And the, the first thing I thought is, uh, shouldn't that be fewer handwriting, not less handwriting? <laughs> 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 
<laughs> oh, God. I think he really meant that. Less handwriting than more social pathology. I wonder if he understands that when you handwrite, you actually write something. That is, there's content and language behind the writing. It's not just something on the paper. Because it seems to me that he's either ignoring that uh, exactly and uh, or, or just uh, refuses to believe it. Based on his actual writing, he may be accurately kind of reflecting an internal truth in that what he's basically done here is recapitulate the standard screed about the death of handwriting. In other words, the content kind of pre-exists. He just sort of put it down. <laughs> this all started, of course, when people stopped grinding their own ink because you used to be able to sort of tell things about a person by looking at the ink. Somebody who got up in the morning and found all the good oak galls, you knew they were on the ball because you could see that ink eat into the parchment and know, you know, they had worked on that ink. And then it was, oh, we don't have to trim the goose quills, right? Let's just use these fancy writing sticks that came out. And you could not tell anything about the way they sharpened the goose quill because they weren't sharpening any. And, you know, young people these days, you show them a goose, they have no idea. The, uh, how to get quills off the thing and how to sharpen them. <laughs> Next, it's cursive, and then that goes away. So he, he may be on to something here, but I think it's a bit late in the game to be complaining about it. So I, I actually have a serious question, and maybe if one of you is familiar, you can help answer this for me. I learned Russian at the university, and they taught us cursive as pretty much the only way to write it. There was no printing form. You either typed it or you used this cursive. And if you look at the alphabet, it's actually quite a bit simpler to write the cursive than it is to actually form all those crazy letters. Like, goodness, have you seen their D? Ugh, just well, that's also because like in Russian, if you, if you print in Russian, you shout at people. Oh, I see. Oh, really? So is that the answer? Yeah. So then, yeah. Well, I mean, look, in Russian, there are capital letters and there are small capital letters. Right. Print Russian is shouting at you. <laughs> so they invented cursive so that they wouldn't have to shout. Right. So then is the cursive then still in use by the, you know, just the, av the average uh, Russian speaker, to the best of your knowledge? I actually sort of checked on this a while back because I discovered that I could not remember remember the distinction between a couple of the letters. And so, of course, I checked uh, YouTube to see if they had anything on Russian. Indeed, there was a small movie of a man teaching people how to write in Russian. But he was using cursive, but apparently when you start writing Russian in cursive these days, James Bond music starts playing in the background. <laughs> because that's what happened in the film. And so, they may, you know, sort of be nervous us about that now. I don't know. <laughs> Your difficulty in trying to recreate the forms of the Russian, of the printed Russian letters and said using the Russian cursive actually holds the seeds for the answer to this guy's complaint. If you don't teach handwriting and you just teach printing, as people age, they will, their letters will erode and become simpler and faster. They'll actually develop their own unique form of handwriting. Now I think about it, he should be happy about this loss of teaching handwriting if he wants everyone to have their own unique form of expression. We and already have the they're called doctors. <laughs>
<laughs> no, no, but actually, thank you for bringing that up, Trey. Because, I mean, in all seriousness, I, of course, did learn cursive growing up because I grew up back in the Dark Ages, back in the 1980s, when we thought Footloose was a good movie. That's right, I said it. <laughs> anyway, and, and that was the thing that always bothered me. It was, essentially, cursive was supposed to be a shorthand. It was supposed to be a way to write printing faster. But it was somebody else's. And so it wasn't faster for me. And, in fact, when I abandoned it and uh, I started printing, I did exactly what you noted, Trey. So, I, you know, I started handwriting, and then pretty soon I saw ways to shorten it. And I've essentially developed my own cursive that's much faster than either printing or using the standard cursive form. And the reason I said that is because I did the exact same thing. Except the way you're doing it, you probably would run into trouble with more formal writing because you're slowing down in the wrong places, and that lets the ink flow off the pen more and pull up. Pen? You, you have to go at the right speed. Well, sorry, pen, for those of you who have trouble with context. No, no I, I, I use a light pen and a PDA for all my writing. I'm not familiar with this analog pen you're talking about. How do you add individuality? Oh, oh no, it, it tracks the movements. I don't have it convert to type. I just uh, basically write on my iPad with my iPen, sending my iDocuments, because that's how I roll. To your iFriends. <laughs> The other thing I wanted to say is that this reminds me of Socrates complaining about the invention of writing mm. and how this will create forgetfulness in the learner's souls because they will not use their memories. They will trust the external written characters and not remember of themselves. Were and you having trouble thinking of an example a minute ago? The Hulk anger passed. <laughs> I've decided but I was just pointing out, maybe if you had to rely on your memory more, you would have remembered some examples. I remembered to use the Google and looked it up. <laughs> <laughs> All of this is really just the orthographic equivalent of hiking his pants up to his armpits and screaming, Get off my lawn! <laughs> you know, what's really going on here fundamentally, it's just it's just basic grammaticalization. And what you guys were – this I realized this when you guys were talking about individuals – will replace cursive with their own cursives. Because really what happens is that, you know, handwriting starts out in some stylized form and then gradually gets eroded into more and more scrawly, you know, uh, loopy kinds of things. That's just that's just the way things normally gradually erode in a grammaticalization process until finally they erode away to nothing. And that's what's happened to cursive. And now the whole process will have to be repeated. It may happen at an individual level or there may be some more standardization. I mean, the interesting thing will be if individuals, instead of just uh, creating loopy, scrawly forms of, of writing, follow the model they get from various fonts, since they're exposed now to lots and lots of different strange ways of printing the same letters. And maybe individual cursives will be more uh, influenced by, you know, fonts that people get on their, uh, whatever these things, computers, screens are called. Ah, so then uh, rather than just writing cursive, we won't call it cursive, we'll call it writing uh, Comic Sans. Something like that. <laughs> well, I think that's enough for this. Um, if you'd like to submit a comment, please mail longhand replies to your local government representative. They are obligated by law to pass all such letters on to us. We will be back with Mr. Linguist again, but first, a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is not brought to you by the American Philological Association, the Poetics and Linguistics Association, nor the International Council of Onomastic Sciences. All right, we're back. And today we've got Mr. Linguist with us on the line. Are you there, Mr. Linguist? Yes, I'm being here and have wonderful time talking with you. Fantastic. We have a question from Kevin Yella Bickelson of New Haven, Connecticut. 
She asks, Is funner in any dictionary? So what do you think, Mr. Linguist? Is funner a word? Ah, he's a good question. Thank you, Rodilla. It all depends on how you define word word. Uh, is appropriate to put too many tests, and you see result of tests, and then you know for certain whether it's word or not. Uh, first, most important test is word on Google. If you type into Google, it's important not. No red underline, I do this. So Google thinks funner is word. However, look and first hit is to Urban Dictionary. I have already been saying that Urban Dictionary is quite dangerous for use by outsiders. Therefore, result is inconclusive, and we need third test to decide. Last test is most conclusive, but highly volatile. First, you take word out of language and pin down with pins like butterfly. Next, you extract word DNA for later use. Finally, you pour mixture of acid, ammonia, lye, and calligraphy ink over word and see if dissolve. If dissolve is word, this we know because after it dissolve is no longer word, which means that it used to be word. If not dissolve, no word. And that is that. I am pleased and disappointed to inform that I performed test, and it's true. Funner is word or was word. Unfortunately, it's gone now. I have created new word funner from old DNA and reintroduced to English, but it no longer means quite what it used to mean. Uh, now means some kind of hairless rodent with very bad smell. Uh, much apologize, but uh, what's done is done. I wash my hands of it. And there you have it, Kevin Yella. Thank you, Mr. Linguist. That's all the time we have on Language Made Difficult. Join us next time when we give you our top 10 phonemes for 2012. Thanks for listening. Some people think parrots don't have names. I like that power. It, it was insightful, that's the thing. It's just that nobody, nobody cares and nobody will read it. Oh, yes, I was just listening to you guys do Basketball Made Boring. Come on, Trey, this is serious stuff. Crickets. Wow. Good God, that's amazing, though. You will wait your turn. Very well, then. I'm not sure how to get any traction on that. Um, <laughs> because uh, I'll, there I'll isn't go first. any. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Actually, when I showed up, you were gone and the door was locked. God, I screwed that up. <laughs> yeah, no, no, he, I, I, I thought, no, he, I, Never mind. It's convenient because we don't have to think of anything when we're lazy. And especially clowns that try to kill you. They don't do these archophonemes anymore. In the old days, we had archophonemes. You know, Chomsky didn't invent the transformation. <laughs> Crickets. If you write an abstract that's interesting enough to be accepted for the conference, then the paper will be too long and complicated to actually deliver at the conference. But if you write a paper that's short enough that you could, you know, deliver it and people could understand it, then the abstract won't be accepted because it would be too simple. When I heard Jacques yeah. Derrida speak one time, and I had absolutely no idea what he said at the end. I mean, I understood all the words, but what in the world was he talking about? There was a duality there that you weren't supposed to be able to resolve. I don't know if it's a bug or a feature. Interesting. Just because I can. Beautiful. Well, that's fascinating. You're, you're going about your daily life and something brings up Hittite text. Humuhumu nuku nuku apua. So manen. No, no, the book, the book. There's some deep psychology going on here. Well, my eyes my eyes passed over every word in the book. I don't know every if that counts as reading. I have read some Derrida, too. That was horrible. Crickets. I was going to make something, some sort of contribution that I thought was valuable, and now I forgot what it was about. And I had nightmares. Now, I, I like violence. I thought that went very well. Not bad. Crickets. 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 Crickets.